0: Section 9 of Brain and Personality This is a LibriBox recording. All LibriBox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit org. Recording by Maria Abrenica Brain and Personality or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind by William Hannah Thompson Section 9 In the preceding chapter, We have seen that the evolution of a nervous system is guided by a great principle, which on the last analysis may be regarded as a specific nervous reaction to environment. By means of the undeviating inflow along the afferent channels of stimuli from the outer world or environment, the receptive nerve elements are affected till they in turn excite an outflow along the afferent channel. And when the same afferent stimulus is repeated, often enough, the consequent afferent effect becomes so uniform as to constitute a spatial mode of nervous action, or in the other words, a nervous function. It is thus that this afferent agency coming from without continuously proceeds, fashioning one system of the nervous centers after another, until at last it begins to look as if out of the human brain itself. It constructs toward its virtually a pure-thinking machine, like all its previous mechanism, and whose operations, though more complex, yet illustrate the same automatic principles which govern the functions of the medulla oblongata. This inference seems legitimate, because in so many of its activities, the human brain appears fully exemplify just the same order of reactions which we have met before at lower levels. Why is this not enough? It is in no sense enough, simply because the brain of man and the mind of man do not correspond. Nowhere is there such a discrepancy. There is a gap here which no facts of animal evolution even begin to account for. Man's brain in physical and anatomical respects corresponds quite closely to that of the chimpanzee. And hence, according to all precedents, His mind should show but little advance in degree, and none in kind over the mind of this ape. We cannot allow at this point any confusion in reasoning to obscure this fundamental fact. On the one side is Homo, properly placed in zoology among the primates, because in his body, as in his brain, he clearly belonged to that class of animals. But it is thus as to his mind. Those stupendous works and bridge across the Firth of Fort and the Simplon Tunnel through the Alps existed down to the smallest detail in their engineer's mind, before they existed on earth. Hence, we are in the presence here of a being endowed with the supreme attributes of a creator, or one who solely by his own designing gives origin to things, which otherwise would not be. Such an endowment, Makes man wholly unnatural, because by this time we know nature well and her limitations in all her works. Where in nature is there anything so weird as he who found the infinite ether and straightway made it the invisible bearer of his words across oceans? What else can his mind not do when he orders electricity to change its tones of thunder to the small tickings of a telegraph or by telephone carry his personal voice? hundreds of miles away. Now, our contention is not that such human doings are marvelous, but that they are actually supernatural because nature has nothing which even remotely approximates to them. But there are other aspects without number of these mental activities which are equally supernatural, as he displays them in language, science, philosophy, religion, poetry, art, statesmanship, law, finance, and the rest, in any one of which spheres he has no fellow. But so accustomed have we become to this great fact that we wholly lose its profound significance, which shows that man is an animal, only physically, and the more complete our knowledge of living nature is the plainer becomes this conclusion. Physically, the gap between the brain of man and the brain of an anthropoid ape is too insignificant to count. But their difference as beings corresponds to the distance of the earth from the nearest fixed star. Therefore, the brain of man does not account for man. What does? We are bound by our premises to seek for an answer to this question, only by searching the brain itself, to note whether in it there are evidences of the presence of a something whose agency affords the sole explanation why the human brain differs so in its capacities from any other animal brain. Having started with a brain, with a brain, we must continue. Let the investigation take us where it may. The brain is a physical and material thing, and we have already adduced proofs based entirely on material facts. Brain facts as they may be called, which show that brain matter as such as itself no properties of mind and becomes related to mental processes only in certain localities by becoming there artificially and not originally nor congenitally endowed with such functions. It is not with his whole brain that a man knows things or devices, but he does so in limited areas of one hemisphere thereof, which he himself has educated for the purpose. The question then follows. How came these particular brain places... To be thus chosen and not others precisely like them in original organization that this great creative choice proceeds from no source in the brain itself is demonstrated by the following considerations thus as we have already shown the speech centers in the brain are as much the creations of the individual himself to store the words in them for clothing his thoughts without as if he made a wardrobe in which to store garments for clothing his body. The speech centers no more generate the words in the one case than the wardrobe manufacturers the articles which it contains. Hence, men supply themselves with as different languages as they invent different costumes, though no one ever started in life with either of these equipments. In fact, he might inherit clothes, but never words for word centers in the brain must always be personally made because no brain of itself made a word. As we stated in chapter six, this is true beyond mistake by the human faculty of learning to read, which rules out the error of some theorists who, confining themselves to observing how little children first learn speech through the ear, ascribe the faculty to automatic imitation. But a reading center in the angular gyrus has nothing to do with the ear. And moreover, it can be made only at the age when purposive for long intention takes the place of echo-like imitation. But we are now about to enumerate a most important series of facts which, like those previously mentioned, came to light by medical experience and which go even farther than the discovery of the speech centers in demonstrating how the brain is physically related to thought. We begin, as before, with an actual occurrence, this time in surgery. Sir William McEwen, the eminent professor of surgery of the University of Glasgow, gives the particulars of the case of a mechanic who received a severe injury to his head. Immediately after the accident, he was in a peculiar mental condition. Physically, he could see but what he saw conveyed no impression to his mind. Thus an object presented itself before him which he could not make out. But when this object emitted sounds of the human voice, he at once recognized it to be a man who was one of his fellow workers. He was equally unable to recognize his wife and children. By eyesight, he could not tell how many fingers he held up when he placed his own hand before his face, till he became cognizant of the number by the sense of touch these symptoms gave the key to the hidden lesion in his brain and therefore were to trephine his skull on operation it was found that a portion of the inner table of the skull had been detached from the outer and had become embedded in the gray matter of that locality the bone was removed from the brain and reimplanted in proper position upon which he recovered and returned to his work. It is evident from this that that fragment of bone interfered with an important mental function located in just that brain's spot which it penetrated, because so soon as it was removed from that place, the mental function returned. What was that mental function? It was not sight, for the man saw his wife and friends as well as before, but he did not know what he saw. Hence, seeing and knowing what is seen are not the same thing, because each of these mental processes has its separate material seat in the brain. But as knowing appears to be so much higher as an intellectual performance than the simple sensation of sight, writers have inaccurately termed this special form of abolition of intelligence, mind blindness. To distinguish it from word blindness, which follows upon damage to the word center in the angular gyrus, but word blindness, which renders a person wholly illiterate because he no longer recognizes printed or written words when he sees them, though he knew them perfectly before, is as much an example of mind blindness as was this patient's mind blindness, the only difference between the two being in the things which were seen. In word blindness, words are seen but not known in this so-called mind blindness objects are seen but not known in both therefore the blindness is the same in nature namely mental blindness as this inability to recognize visual objects has been frequently observed after localized damage to the brain from disease the locality itself where things perceived by sight are then known has become as well identified as is the word center in the angular gyrus with the same important deductions about the way by which this mental function comes to be localized as in the case of the eye word center. That is to say, we learn to know how we know what it is we see by first discovering where this act of knowing is done, and secondly, by establishing the fact that no other place in the whole brain save this knows anything by sight, and also why this is so? In explanation, we shall first state that the primary center of sight in the occipital lobe is in the neighborhood of a wedge-shaped convolution called the cuneus. See frontispiece. This convolution, of course, is found equally in both hemispheres, and that it is directly related to sight is proved by the fact that it is only when the region of this convolution is destroyed in both hemispheres that total blindness is produced. That function of sight in the cuneus is doubtless congenital, but the child when born does not know what it sees. That particular power is afterwards acquired, not by the cuneus but by an adjacent area of brain cells. In front of the cuneus, which we ourselves for the purpose of convenience will hereafter call the precuneus how this locality comes to acquire this important mind function of knowing what visual objects are. We will discuss after those equally interesting and still more varied facts connected with the recognition of sounds. Thus, in the temporal lobe is found the original center of hearing, just as the cuneus in the occipital lobe is the original center of sight. But a whole group of centers becomes developed afterwards around the regional auditory center, each one of which has learned what different kinds of sound mean. One of the greatest of this is that for music, and a divine faculty it is, because more than anything else, it is the speech of the soul as it awakens to a communion with the great harmonies of the non-material universe. A true musician must have a richly furnished shrine for the goddess of music in his temporal lobe, and that he has is by some persons, who, after having been very fond of music and able to tell at once whether they were listening to a composition by Mendelssohn or one by Wagner, suddenly experience the sad misfortune technically termed amusia. No longer can they recognize any tune, however familiar, and in vain they try a violin or piano to bring back to them their departed joy. They know no music thereafter. The reason being that material damage has happened to the center in the temporal lobe, which has been separately educated for music, just as another place in the same lobe has been separately educated for words. We have already described what is meant by words deafness, as well as how it costs. But besides the center for words and the center for music, the auditory area of the temporal lobe has a place. Where the meaning of sounds in general is recognized as the visual area just mentioned has its place for recognizing objects of sight let this auditory area be separately damaged and the unfortunate then cannot tell the sound of a locomotive whistle from that of a church bell all sounds including the voices of his friends are alike indistinguishable noises to him to this condition the term mind-deafness has been given, signifying sound meaning deafness. Therefore, while the ability to know is a great attribute of the human mind, yet these facts prove that there are actual physical bases in the brain on whose integrity as such this faculty can alone be exercised. An artist may be lost in admiration while gazing at the sistine Madonna. An apoplectic lack may make him the next day, though still able to see that great picture no longer able to distinguish it from a wallpaper. A trained musician may be entranced at one time listening to a symphony of Beethoven, but in a few hours, though still able to hear it, he may be wholly unable to recognize it as music. In both cases, a highly developed mental capacity is lost immediately after a local brain injury. How are we to explain the sudden abolition of superior mental endowments by such physical changes? The explanation is as conclusive as it is important, namely that these knowing areas are found in the same brain hemisphere that contains the speech centers and in that hemisphere only, so that the inference is certain that they are all created by the same agency. Thus, Professor Mike Evans' patient was a right-handed man. And the splinter was driven into a convolution of his left brain that is into the speaking and not into the wordless hemisphere now he had just the same collection of cells in the corresponding region in front of the right cuneus and moreover they were not injured at all the accident nevertheless they could not help him recognize his wife and children any more than those cells could read latin it is evident therefore that those right hemisphere cells though they could see because they belonged to the visual area yet did not know what they saw any more than an infant knows what it sees when it first comes into the world though existing in an adult man they had never been taught the meaning of visual objects any more than his right temporal lobe cells had ever been taught to hear a word or his right angular gyrus to read a word likewise it has been found that the injuries Technically termed lesions, which produce the various forms of mind deafness above described, occur only in the left hemispheres of the right-handed persons or in the right hemispheres of left-handed persons. In other words, they show how these mental functions strictly follow the hand most used in childhood, just as the speech centers do. Hence, we learn to know just we learn to think. We think in words, and for that purpose, we register our world memories in their laboriously prepared brain places. So also we register the memories of what we see and of what we hear in their prepared places, the preparation in both instances having originally been begun by the most active hand in response to personal intent. Investigations into infant psychology show that the first training of the sight object center occurs only a little earlier than the time when the cells in the temporal lobe are being trained to hear the first words for the infant begins its lessons of sight interpretation by stretching for its little hand to find out what is which it is looking at. So far, back in our lives, however, did this process begin that we have forgotten all about it. But the saying, a burned child dreads the fire, refers to the inscription made by the child on its precarious that a flame is not like some other attractively shining thing and that it had better not to try again to say whole of it. According to the psychological laws which we have already mentioned, memories of all kinds are doubtless, registered in our brain cells by the original stimulus of each. And when an agency like Conscious Purpose systematically repeats the same stimulus to the same cells, they become arranged there in a library of records as we have shown is in the case in the speech centers. There is really nothing incomprehensible in this, for something quite analogous to it, all is accomplished in that remarkable mechanism. The phonograph, in which layer after layer of its delicate receptive wax leaves, may be found covered with all kinds of sentences, or entire songs with their tunes. While by a device similar to Broca's convolution, there come back again through its brazen throat the words, tunes, tones, and all else spoken into the machine. An instructed Muslim Sheikh from Arabia might regard this an unholy invention of Satan, which of itself produces all that it utter[s]. Whereas neither it nor Satan, but a human person, is the source of every one of its uncanny performances. From these considerations. There can be no doubt that the exercise of every separate mental faculty is conditioned by acquired cerebral changes similar to those by which is interpreted all information coming by the eye and the ear. The brain thus comes to have places where memories are stored for the understanding of its special sensation. But it also follows on anatomical grounds that the human being, when he thinks, perceives, knows, remembers, conceives, reasons, purposes, and speaks as these powers physically located in only one of the two hemispheres of his brain. As long as the educated hemisphere is in sound condition, it matters little. So far, as the mind is concerned, what happens to the uneducated hemisphere? Does the man mentioned in chapter 4, page 63, who had lost one of his hemispheres by disease. Happily for him, had his speaking hemisphere left intact, and therefore he remained himself in all mental and moral characteristics. Hence, his story and others, like his in medical literature, prove that human brain matter does not become human in its powers until that something within takes its hand to fashion it. But for that purpose, one hemisphere of the brain matter is quite enough, just as one violin is quite enough for its player while to the untaught hemisphere is left only what it had at birth, without a word or an idea or a single acquired accomplishment. But what is this wondrous something which we have been following from convolution to convolution of the human brain under the guidance, not of metaphysicians but of physicians and surgeons? We have seen that this something is not natural but supernatural, both in its powers and its creations, by means of those powers hence it could have not come by any modification or advance upon a chimpanzee's brain because in the human brain itself this something is only in one of its hemispheres according as it has been put there not by the hemisphere but by the human being himself which he does generally in the left but sometimes in the right one with equal completeness in either case this something can be no other than that greatest of realities here, the self or the human personality. To us, this is the most direct certainty which we know of, because all other phenomena are contingent upon the relative to personal consciousness. Those reasoners who attempt to explain personality away by saying that it is only the condition of our makeup at the time being, evidently, Imagine that we are ourselves according to the state of the atoms or ions of our brains. But this theory is at once disposed of by the demonstration that our mentality is wholly unilateral in our brains and is made so by nothing in the brain itself, either before birth or at birth. This statement, which implies that one of the two human brain hemispheres is normally unintelligent and thoughtless, is unacceptable to some reasoners because it compels the admission that the thinker and his brain are two separate things the brain like the hand being only the instrument of the thinker therefore they search for indications that the silent hemisphere sometimes does come to the help of its highly endowed partner when the latter is disabled in its speaking power by disease the inference being that it does so by its inherent capacity for speech but no unmistakable cases of the kind have yet been published, and, as we have remarked before in chapter six, those which seem to be so can easily be otherwise explained. Thus in childhood both hemispheres are equally teachable, and speech loss by damage to one can be made up by the education of the speech convolutions in the other. But the age when new languages may be learned varies in different individuals, so that it is not impossible for it to be done in the fifties, if, therefore, An adult is found to have recovered from aphasia after a time. This does not prove that he had two speech centers all the while for speech is never an original endowment nor a spontaneous power, but must always be the result of the special training of brain cells. That this marvelous training is practically limited to only one hemisphere is shown by the positive and not the hypothetical evidence in hundreds of cases of individuals. Many of them, men distinguished for mental gifts, who after a stroke causing either sensory or motor aphasia, never regain their lost powers. However, long they live afterwards with an uninjured hemisphere in their heads. Nor is the problem changed or lessened by referring to the speaking and knowing hemisphere as somehow the driving hemisphere for the question then is what makes it drive, so wondrously to the utmost ranges of human thought, while its fellow is left unable to know a life companion by sight or to distinguish strains of music from mere noises. End of section nine recording by Maria Abrenica.